You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Turning your Bibles to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 will be reading verses 6 through 15. In the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 917. Page 917. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, starting in 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted, built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Please be seated. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you might guide the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth. May they be keeping with your word. May they be faithful to your text, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. In a couple of months, we will celebrate Veterans Day. This day was not chosen random. It's the anniversary of Armistice Day, the anniversary of the agreement that ended World War I. The world was relieved and excited to end this bloody period. 20 to 40 million people, civilian and military, were dead. And war had entered a brutal new stage of mechanization brought about by the machine gun, tanks, trenches, chemical warfare. Well, while the world was optimistic, Germany's government and economy were in shambles, while the U.S. had lost 116,000 of its servicemen. Central Power had lost 7 million people in their population. And this was from probably the most economically productive segments of their population. Furthermore, the 1919 Treaty of Versailles uh, forced Germany to accept responsibility for World War I and then fined the, the government and the banking system $33 billion which nearly bankrupted their government and their banking system. Germany's monarchy, the Second Reich, was dead and was replaced with a weak Weimar Republic 
almost like a puppet government that was put together to hold everything together after World War I. Naturally, there was an opposition party that, that showed up. They called themselves the National Workers Socialist Party. They were based on, their ideas were based on the revocation of the Treaty of Versailles, strong state or Reich be established, the unification of German people with strong notes of nationalism. They wanted equal rights for Germans, and they wanted provisions for basic needs. Moreover, they wanted economic prosperity through socialist means. We know this today as the Nazi party, but this was before Hitler, before Mein Kampf. Rather, the rank and file that attended the first Nazi party meeting in 1919 was not looking to take over Europe or exterminate the Jews. They were sick, they were starving, they were angry, they were recovering from a brutal war, the outcome of which they just didn't understand. Well, Hitler was on the scenes, and he was a skilled orator, and him and his, his allies worked their way up Nazi leadership, and they changed things gradually. From 1920 to 1932, Hitler and his allies morphed the tenets of the party. A strong state or Reich to be established became European or almost world domination. The unification of the German people became a master race. Equal rights for Germans became only for Germans. The extermination of the Jews and the subjugation of other races and economic prosperity became another world war to achieve it. 1929, the Great Depression came along, setting the stage for change. And in 1932, 13 years later, as the Nazi party was showing their true colors, they were, more, more, they were basically legitimately democratically elected by an electorate of which 52% would call themselves Christians. In 1933, the Enable Act was, was, was enacted after the German Parliament Party and a fascist dictatorship was born. From 1919 to 1933 to 1945, the Nazi Party went from a fairly legitimate, nationalist, moderate German political movement to a political and moral evil of incredible magnitude that we shuddered at to this day. How could this happen? How could a nation of self-proclaiming Christians lay footings, lay the footings of such evil? Well, this is a political struggle, but a false, strong faith should have informed them. Well, they were taken captive politically and morally through a hollow and deceptive philosophy born of human tradition that gradually grew one step at a time, one small step at a time. Spiritually, these Christians ceased to walk in him as it informed their moral and political decisions and started to walk away. The power of gradualism in human and group psychology cannot be understated. Much ink has been spilt on this concept. On this concept. One a psychologist once said, you can do anything, anything to a group of people as long as you do it slowly enough. And as we look at Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, we will see that Paul notices, notices these warning signs not of a political gradualism, but of a spiritual gradualism that is even more dangerous. The Bible teaches that we are sinners, that we are not okay. It teaches a self-image, an identity that stands in light of a holy God and drives us to repentance. But the world, the flesh, the devil competes daily with this message, seeks to corrupt it, and many times just gradually, well, so far in the book of Colossians, we've seen in chapter 1 that Paul gives thanks for the Colossian church. He prays for them. He breaks down the premise of Christ and his work, and he encourages their growth. But here we come to the passage today to, some might say, the thesis of the book, as Paul addresses a new heresy taking root in the Colossian church. Right here at the beginning, 
in verse, six, in verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. That could be the end of the chapter. That almost could be the end of the book, right? Walking in him will protect the church at Colossae. And that, was, that will be what will protect the church at Sugarland today from corruption of the truth. Well, thankfully, Paul does not end the book here. And we'll see him state and unpack this thesis in verses 6 through 15 and pretty much through the end of the book. We'll do this and we'll discuss it in three points today. The first is walking in him. What does that mean? The second, verse eight through 10, philosophy, verses 8 through 10, philosophy and empty deceit. And then finally, point three, 11 through 15, who we are in him. Let's go ahead and read verse 6 and 7 again as we start our first point, walking in him. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Christian, we are one with Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul chooses his words carefully here. He is referencing each function, each attribute, if you will, of Christ. Christ, the promised Messiah. Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, he's giving him a rightful place in the Godhead. He is Lord. He is God. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. Paul wants to get this straight right up front before we start moving forward. He gives him full authority, a rightful seat at the Godhead. He is God. Some of you might have remembered back in 1990, they launched the Humble Space, uh, Space Telescope. They got a telescope above our atmosphere. And it was able to peer, peer deep into space. And the hope in 1990 was that this would finally bring a finality to our universe. We would see the propagation of the Big Bang. We would see the end of, of all creation. But again, we shot another telescope in 2022 called the James Webb Telescope. And these telescopes produced magnificent, magnificent pictures. But they created more questions than created answers. That thesis, that, that point was not achieved. A promise, a savior, and a Lord that produces a glorious hope and identity. A Lord that is over every molecule in the universe. That's over every galaxy that these telescopes were able to allow us to see. Now, what are we supposed to do? Receive. We are supposed to receive. So some experimentalism would say we are to, this is not speaking of truth. They would say this is speaking of your experience, whatever emotional high that you might have experienced when coming to know Christ. Not talking about joy, but we're talking about pursuing a feeling. Well, that's not correct. Asheva is not speaking of your experience. It's referencing truth. A Messiah, a Savior, a Lord is referencing how we are to receive him in the truth. He is not a good man. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a creation or a heavenly being. He is God. We are to receive this truth of a sovereign Savior who will become our identity. We need to keep looking back, knowing who Christ is and who we are. Paul did not need to reference all these different things to get the Colossian church to know who he was talking about. He did it with a purpose. He was driving at a truth and a very important truth that we need to take home today. Well, let's go ahead again and read 6 and 7, focusing on 7, and we're going to take a look at what this result is. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As we let verse 6 
sink in and we move to verse 7, we see four participles that lay out the effect of this truth on Christians, the identity they produce. These are past participles. These are things that are being done. They are past, present, progressing. These are actions of God's sanctifying work in us. The first we see is rooted. This is a plant analogy. Laying down the foundation, a tree that is planted in soil, rendered fixed, thoroughly grounded. And it goes hand in hand with the next participle. Rooted is what's happened. It is built up. It is a process. This is an architectural analogy. Continuous process. Christian believers are being likened to a structure that Christ is building up, that is bringing to completion. The finished structure for which the foundation has already been laid in Christ. We've used the analogy in the past of, of like baking a cake. It's not that he's being driven to a spiritual perfection, but they're being complete in Christ, complete in what Christ has designed them to be. And established, they are to be established. This is a, a legal analogy, uh, referencing a contract or deed to make firm. It is written to make sure. This is something that will happen. It, has been a, it is a deed signed by our Heavenly Father. His work and our salvation are established. And abounding, here we move to the active. This is the outcome of his work. When I was growing up in, in a little church in Minnesota, we had our pastor, his name was uh, Dan Miller. And he used to say that Thanksgiving, this says abounding in Thanksgiving, he would say Thanksgiving is a guard stationed at our heart's door that fights theological and spiritual deception. As we verse, verse 7, this should be our reaction. Wow, thanksgiving. As we verse verse 7, his work in our life continues. Wow, thanksgiving. It is hard to spiritually mislead a thankful heart. Christians, do we see our lives in light of this? In light of this, our lives and our world in light of a holy Jesus? Does it inform our worldview, our self-image? Well, this is the thesis. Well, how do we walk in it? What does this look like? How do we guard against the things that would drive us away? Well, as we talked about in Sunday school, we worship. We worship. We attend church. We serve others. Pray, reading the scripture, giving. But this is not designed without a purpose. In Sunday school, we went over a couple of purposes for worship, but there's also another one, which is our protection these are not supposed to be onerous things. This is not a, a holy God saying, hey, bear this burden, dance, if you will. No, he's saying, this is my design. I have made you. I know what is good, and this is what will protect you. This is what is good for you. If you are not a Christian, well, what is your trial? The world will have an answer for you, and it will fail you. It will be focused on an empty self-identity that is not the truth of Christ. There's only one place you will find truth, and that is in God's revealed word. And Christian, finally, do you guard the heart, your heart with thanksgiving? Do you count your blessings? Not just, spiritual, uh, not just material blessings. Of course, we should be thankful for these things. But spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings. Do we ponder what this actually means? We'll get to our second point here of a philosophy of empty deceit as we read verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by a philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the wholeness, 
the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. We got a little taste of this last week in verse 4 that said, I say this in order that you may, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. But as we come to our text today, we'll see that this is not a new problem, but is a struggle of the church here at Colossae and the struggle of the church here today. <clears throat> so we have the Colossae heresy, what it may be. Uh, as we see in verse 8, by a philosophy of empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is a syncretism battle of early Christianity trying to subvert and co-opt this new faith. So there's lots of good disagreement on what this might be. Um, and though we don't know specifically what it is, but we do have elements of it. We see things in the scripture and historical context that really allow some truth to be plumbed. So we're going to go over some of that, but just realize that we don't know specifically what it is. But we do know it's de dealing with the elemental spirits of the world. We see this term again throughout Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we also see this again in Colossians 3, 4, elemental principles. In the Greek, this word means elemental. It means of low, a low row, low rank. It means basic. Referencing the basic elements of the rituals of human religion. It's almost, I mean, almost an insult saying these elemental spirits, these, this basic religion. Well, there's also a historical context to being, be brought out here. Uh, Greco-Roman culture was steeped in gods that lived in a different plane. They were, they were above and they were mildly interested, living in a pantheon, if you will, a pantheon of these gods. They would represent forces of nature, and they would pray to them, sacrifice to them for appeasement. Well, this is not a synchronism with a pagan faith, but this is a synchronism with a pagan culture and a Christian faith. Likely, uh, some theologians have put forth a, a meripah mysticism, uh, or it's translated a char charitable mystery, trying to turn Jesus into a powerful spirit. They will point to passages like Ezekiel 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 26, where Ezekiel sees a vision of a chariot carried by four heavenly beings. And this is a very attractive image, if you will, for these early Christians. It sought to almost pantheonize the Christian Godhead, not bring them into like a, a Roman Godhead, but to liken them to the gods that they see in the culture, and, the, and especially in the dealings with the worlds. And it was gradual. Gradual. It did not outright deny, uh, deny Christ. It was not a complete you know, offering of a complete different road, a different way to go. It didn't have to provide even Judaism. But it's not all at once, but Paul knew that it would grow gradually. He knew that it would lay the seed for a great heresy. And he knew this because this was the religious atmosphere of Asia Minor. Jews and Christians would have been exposed to these ideas. One of the main problems is that underneath that understanding, there is no direct or conceivable contact between a supreme God and the created. With this understanding, Paul's refutation makes more sense. This was bound to undermine the gospel. If God of a material world can't come in direct uh, relation with the created world, then how would he create it? It was unthinkable to be incarnated, uh, that, that God could be incarnated in bodily flesh in accordance to, with Colossians 1.22. The Son of God could be born of a woman, Galatians 4 or 5. This is a big problem. And communication between God and human beings on earth could not be addressed. It must be carried out through a series of mediators, human, spiritual, hybrids, special people. Look at me. Look at this revelation. Look at this connection that I have. A series of intermediaries between God and the world of humanity. It's a pagan concept being applied to Christianity, and it was tempting. People want to be special. And in this culture, people who had this gifting, who had this connection, were treated well. 
They were provided for. They were seen high as, as, as high within the social construct. But this was a subversion that was co-opting the gospel. Paul insists that the universe was brought into being through and for Christ. And in verse 15, Christ will see that Christ has triumphed over these ideas and, quote, put them to shame. Christian, there is no higher wisdom. He emphasizes that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are accessible through Christ. Against the belief of an indefinite series of intermediaries against man and between man and God, Christ is the personal embodiment and fullness of deity. He says, guys, this is basic stuff. These are elemental things. This is the stuff that your forefathers has been, have been, falling, off, been, been uh, falling for for years. We don't need intermediaries. We are free from paying homage to approach the divine through Christ. Nothing can claim the allegiance of those who Christ has redeemed. Colossian church was being urged to accept a revamping of old patterns of life that Christ had rendered obsolete. All this should take no regard, should have no regard from those who Christ had died for him and risen, and risen with him in newness of, newness of life. However, the specifics, the specifics of this specific heresy are not terribly important. The level's lies are ubiquitous to this life. And here and in Colossae, they float on a boat of gradualism. They're appealing. They're self-serving. They're pretty close to the truth. Nearly all heresy has one thing in common, though, and that is that it ties the things of God to the things of man. The idea is that it subtly conflicts sound doctrine and contradicts the knowledge of Christ. And another thing it has in common, it's captivating, verse 8. See that no one takes you captive. The Greek here refers to kidnapping, a magnetism. It grows and it takes. And it's passed down, generation to generation. Human tradition, a warning. We must challenge everything that is taught in the Bible. Challenge it with Holy Scripture. All human tradition settles on self-trust, and it only compounds over time. It only gets worse, and it only moves in the direction of self. And we see this specifically in the text, verse 9. Contrast uh, verse 8 to verse, for verse, uh, to verse 8 or 9 through 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. Why would you want it? You have freedom of Christ. You have true access the glorious total of what is God is available to you, Christian, in Christ. Any way of thinking and living that is not through Jesus is a lie. And even, even more astounding here in verse 10, we have union. You have been filled in him. This does not mean that, we, that Christ transfers a part of his Godhead to us. We are not little gods or, or something of that nature that would have been uh, common in, in, in uh, heresy like this. But spiritually, we lack nothing. We are fulfilled in him. And remember verses 6 and 7, the only true God is found through Christ and you are offered union with him. This concept brings to mind the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegorical tale of a Christian walk uh, that was published in 1906. And it follows uh, Christian and Christ Christiana as they, they make this, this, symbol, this allegorical journey through the Christian life. And at the very beginning, they meet a man called the interpreter. And the interpreter takes him through a, a house and he shows him what they call significant rooms. And each one of these rooms is a picture, is an example that is supposed to teach something. It's supposed to show something. And in one of these rooms, he opens the door and there is a man with a pile of muck 
and a muckrake. And in later publications, they would call it straw, perhaps. But the man was looking downward with the muckrake in his hand, and he was raking through the filth on the floor, the straw, the, the manure maybe, on the floor, where stood over him an angel with a celestial crown being handed to him, being offered to him. But the man did not look up, but continued to rake, trying to find treasure in this muck, in this refuge, in this straw on the floor. Today, Paul is our interpreter, and he is telling us, don't fixate on these carnal things. Why would you want it? Christ offers you a crown of immense value of everything you'd ever want from the spiritual. Many tenets of the Colossian heresy are alive and well today, and Christian sin is appealing. It is subtle, it's gradual, and it's intoxicating. It works even more through culture here as it does in Asian Minor. The elemental spirits are alive and well, and they're recycling old ideas. The religion of, sec- of, of secular freedom is not new. It's not a new idea. Live how you want, leading to fornication, homosexuality, and all sorts of, of, of carnal sins. This is not a new idea. This has been around for a long time. The religion of self. Look inside. You have an inner truth. That's where the answer is. It's within you. This is not a new idea. It's been recycled. These are elemental spirits. These are the things that Christ has put to rest. Stay in the scripture. Guard your heart. Stay rooted in him. Attend church. This is God's good design. This is God's will for your life. Use your elders. Avoid these plausible arguments. Recently, I was talking to a young man that was starting college, and he wanted, you know, he was, he, he was excited about the future and what God had for him. And I said, full stop, full stop. We need to figure out where you're going to go to church when you go to college. We need to embed you in the local church. We need, we'll, we'll get there. But in the meantime, this is God's good and wise plan for your life to be, to be communing with other believers. And Christian, as I have seen many people throughout, throughout my life walk away from the truth, they seem to have one thing in common. They isolate themselves. They'll go through a period of isolation. Proverbs, 1, Proverbs 18 verse 1 say, states that an isolated man rages against all wisdom. That is not God's design for any of us. And church, guard the teaching of the church. Here we have a nearly 80-page teaching statement. And this is not designed so that uh, Ben or, or someone else might have an iron fist over what's taught in the church. It's because we demand good teaching. There is a reason why we have seminaries. Not so that Dr. Johnston can have a job, because what he does is important. He teaches a generation of teachers who are going to be handling the most valuable thing in the world, which is the word of God. It's a reason why uh, Ben has a, has, a, has, a, has a great background in education. It's not so that we can say, hey, look at our church. We got a guy with a, with a couple of master's degrees. Look at us. No, that's not it. It's because we value de- good teaching. And church, demand it. Demand it. If God leads you away from this assembly some way, if you move, if you go to a church, do not go to a church that does not value and protect its teaching ministry. Hold your elders accountable to that. That is the most important function of the church. And then finally here as we move in to point three, who we are in him. 
Let's go ahead and read 11 through 15 one more time. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling a record of debt that stood against us in its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him. Paul creates a dramatic contrast for the Colossians and for us between Christ and the world, the elemental spirits. This is a a beautiful description of the life that we have in him. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without human hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He referenced circumcision multiple times here because it was important in Jewish culture. It strikes at their very identity. This has been their identity for thousands of years. Circumcision was, it was, was, really, uh, was absolutely fundamental to being a Jew. And this is a circumcision of the heart spoken of figuratively, putting off the sins of the flesh. Trusting Christ as your Savior and putting off the old body and putting on the new. You're a new man. You have a new identity. You have hope in this identity. You are a new creation in Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith, the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the new birth, the new creation, the new conversion. Baptism doesn't save us, but is an outward affirmation of the already accomplished inner work. Baptism is linked with circumcision without human hands, the circumcision of Christ. He's speaking figuratively here. We are a new creation in him. In verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. Verse 13, we are dead. We have no hope. We see this brought out again in Romans 3. Picture is one of condemnation a legal charge, a debt. In Roman society, if you were convicted of a crime or if you were accused of a crime, you would go for a judge or a magistrate and there would be a piece of paper and it would lay out the charges. And the judge would seal that, would make his decision. And then if you were sentenced to some sort of prison time or labor, it would be nailed next to your cell. And it would be there saying this is the person, this is what they did, and this is the sentence for the duration of it. Here we see a picture of condemnation, our legal charge. All the sins that Joe ever committed, nailed next to his cell. And it's canceled. It's canceled. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's a picture also of, a, of almost a, of a debt sentence. Christ has, rela- has, has erased this, what we owe. What would, what, what would requ- be required for our justice has been served. It has been paid in full. And verse 15, we'll get back to this here in a second, but what a beautiful picture. He disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is the promise. This is the hope. Disarm the rulers of authorities and put them to open shame. Christians, we don't need them anymore. A truly redeemed heart is rendered incorruptible by this world. Christians, our debts and our sins have been nailed to the cross and are forgiven. 
John 16:33 says, "But I say, but I have said these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but one of those glorious buts in the New Testament, take heart because I have overcome the world. What do you have to fear? What do you have to lose? And furthermore, what on earth do you have to be enticed by? We have surety of these things. No power of hell, no scheme of man. If you're not a Christian today, then who are you? What is your fundamental sense of identity? If it's not truth, it will lead to destruction. It will lead to destruction. The Bible shows the truth of who we are and who we can be in light of Christ. You are on a crashing plane. You're on a sinking boat. And this morning, the Bible shows you an exit plan. We are spiritually dead. See verse 13 and Romans 3. We have all sinned and are spiritually dead. But the wages of those sins are death. Romans 6, for the rages of those things are death, but another glorious but in the New, New, Te- in the New Testament. But the gift of God is eternal life. And what is that gift? Philippians 2, 6, who, though he, Christ, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich spiritually, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I invite you to do this today, so that you might be, verse 6, receive, you might receive the Lord Jesus Christ, And live your lives, verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. This is not a promise of health, wealth, but this is a promise of truth. Look up, take the crown. And then finally, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ has triumphed over the world, sin, the hearts of man. Satan and his lies are doomed. The picture here is of a Roman general who has conquered a city or a people, and he is now parading, parading the defeated forces down in open shame. It didn't come to a, 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 um, a neutral agreement. It was absolute destruction. Though many self-proclaimed Christians were drawn away from the truth in Germany and Europe, the events were leading up to World War II, it was not all. And there's a famous, famous quote from Time Magazine in 1940 that goes like this. Being a lover of freedom, when the revolution came to Germany, I took, looked to the universities to defend it, knowing that they had always boasted of their devotion to the cause of truth. But no. The universities immediately were silenced. Then I looked to the great editors of the newspapers whose flaming editorials in days gone by had proclaimed their love of freedom. But they, like the universities, were silenced in a few short weeks. Only the church stood squarely across the path of Hitler's campaign for suppressing truth. I have never had any special interest in the church before, but now I feel a great affection and admiration because the church alone has had the courage and persistence to stand for intellectual truth and moral freedom. I am forced thus to confess that what I once despised, I now must praise unreservedly. Albert Einstein.
God is bigger than all the things this world has that might subvert him. Christian, walk in him. It's our greatest privilege. Hold on to this message. Value it. If you're a Christian, everything in this life will pull you away. But it is straw in light of Christ and his work. Our lives are not about finding new truth. Jesus plus will always disappoint and always start in small, small, little, plausible arguments. Hold on to truth. Root out your biases. Pray and commune with one another. Protect each other. Be the church. Christ is coming back finally, as in verse 15. My final point of application this morning goes out to the kiddos, goes out to the young people here. The world is coming, and it's coming with a pile of straw. It's coming with a big old pile of muck, and it's going to hand you a rake, and it's going to say, find truth. You will find meaning. You will find self in status, position, money. You have a crown of life in God's proclaimed word that's being offered to you now. Ask questions. Learn. Look up. Take the crown. 18 seems like a, like a lifetime away, but trust me, it isn't. Ask questions, look up, and take the crown. Let's end in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious hope of redemption that we have in your son. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the church that you have designed for us, this model of what we need in our spiritual lives. We thank you for it, Lord. We pray for the little ones in our congregation. Lord, protect them. Draw them to you. Give us parents. Honor our feeble attempts as we try to parent them in light of your word, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.